This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi there, everyone. Uh, Welcome and thanks for joining us from all across the world, I understand it. Um, I am Tony Gilpin. I am hosting tonight's event, The Left Was Right, Radical Politics and Labor Militancy from 1945 to 2020, the present day. Um, Again, my name is Tony Gilpin. I'm a labor historian and author of The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, maybe it's even up on the screen, I don't know, big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland, published just a couple months ago by Haymarket Book. Now, my book details the history of the left-wing Farm Equipment Workers Union, one of the industrial unions that emerged in the 1930s. The FE, as it was known, demonstrated a remarkable level of militancy, civil rights advocacy, and -and rank-and-file activism. The FE was also very involved with Henry Wallace's 1948 third-party presidential campaign. So our interest in the abiding significance of that progressive party effort is something I have in common with John Nichols, along with our shared passion for labor history and especially for those left-wing unions whose stories are less well-known. So let me give you a bit more background about John. He is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, an experienced reporter who has covered stories around the world, and is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books about media and democracy. Naomi Klein hailed John's 2011 book on socialism in the United States, The S Word, uh, published by Verso, as a chilling reminder of how much rich American history has been erased by shallow messaging. And now Verso has just released John's latest book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, an examination of the 75 year-long battle between profiteers and progressives to define the Democratic Party and, by extension, American politics. Congressman Ro Khanna says that John's new book gives us the history and vision for a new progressive era. So John is going to talk a bit about his important new book, and I'll say a little bit about mine, and then we'll discuss the overlap and maybe fight about the distinctions between our books and our perspectives. So over to you, John. Thanks, Tony. I really appreciate it. And I doubt we'll fight very much, at least if our our prior conversations tell me anything. Uh, I'm really honored to be a part of this discussion uh, with Tony, who is such a brilliant historian and whose book is is just a delight to read because it's such a rich and textured story, not just of trade unionism, but really of progressivism uh, at mid-century in the United States and the struggles that progressives went through. 
and I'm also very honored to be a part of a, a, a project here with Haymarket and Verso, which are two publishers that I revere and and really see as, as vital to so much of what we do. This is a difficult time with the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the economic meltdown. It's a time of immense uh, uncertainty and immense challenge. And one of the things we have to do in this period is support uh, those institutions, particularly on the left, like Haymarket and Verso, which have a long history, no matter what's thrown at them, of staying clear and, and strong uh, in producing books that, that don't just tell us about where we've been, but tell us about where we can go. So delighted to be here. And I'll tell you just briefly about my book. I'll, I'll speak for around 15 minutes or so and uh, then hand over to, to Tony. And then we'll go into a conversation, which uh, I can tell you from before we came on, uh, should be pretty good because uh, we, we're two people who actually uh, have traveled some of the same tracks. Uh, and I, so I'm delighted for that and delighted also for your questions. So why write about Henry Wallace? Um, let me tell you something. Uh, many of the people who who've tuned in today will know who Henry Wallace was. But when I started telling people that I was going to write a book about how the rejection of Henry Wallace in 1944 by the Democratic Party started a pattern of compromise that would exist to today and that would actually in many ways define the party's failure to step up on fundamental issues, uh, people would look at me like, what was his name again? And and I'd say Henry Wallace. And he says, wasn't that the guy, the segregationist who ran against Nixon and Humphrey in 68? Or you know, there was just so many people who knew so little about Wallace that I realized that I was going to have to tell a, a, a different kind of story than I had initially anticipated. And what I went back to was a, a period in 19... 42 and 1943. And I'll ask you to go back there with me for a couple minutes. And in that period in 1942 and 1943, the United States had entered into World War II. And Franklin Roosevelt had spelled out four freedoms, this idea that the United States would fight for a particular vision uh, internationally, and frankly, a very progressive vision. And he as he prepared for the 1940 campaign, his re-election campaign, third term, um, he knew that to scope out this more progressive vision, he'd need a different vice president. And so he, Roosevelt had rejected his conservative vice president, a fellow named John Nance Garner, and brought in his secretary of agriculture, Henry Wallace. And Wallace was understood as being pretty much the left wing of the administration, the most activist, committed New Dealer. And as they first succeeded in the election and then proceeded into this period, Roosevelt gave a lot of power to Wallace. Wallace uh, was responsible for overseeing a lot of the war effort, particularly production related to the war effort. Um, and that got him in a lot of trouble because Historians talk about a team of rivals within a presidential administration, and Roosevelt's administration was a team of rivals. There was no question of that. And within that administration, you had folks like Henry Wallace and others who were on the left. You also had bankers and corporatists and militarists. And the interesting thing was that as Wallace oversaw a lot of the war effort, the more conservative forces in the administration tried to 
undermine him on a regular basis. They were horrified that he suggested that workers for defense industries should be treated fairly, that they should be respected, that their unions should be respected. Um, they were horrified that he said that people in other countries who are provi providing raw materials should be respected. Uh, they were horrified that he said that the United States coming out of World War II was going to have to abandon its alliances with and support for colonialist and imperialist governments. And they were horrified by the vision that he had for carrying forward a very progressive New Deal uh, set of policies in the post-war era, effectively to do what he and Roosevelt referred to as winning the peace. And so they, they conspired against him, forced him out of many of his key positions in the administration, and marginalized him. If Henry Wallace had been a typical politician, he would have uh, began to maneuver his way back into the good graces of the corporate types, the bankers, the, the elites of the party. He chose to do something else, and it's where our story really begins. Uh, he traveled across the United States at his own expense as the sitting vice president of the United States and met with civil rights groups, uh, anti groups working on anti-Semitism issues, groups working on uh, conditions of Latino workers, uh, meeting with women who were working in war industries and endorsing the Equal Rights Amendment, and essentially putting himself into a host of movements that were seeking to influence the Democratic Party. Effectively, as the vice president of the United States, embracing movements. And the, the core moment for him came in 1943, when Henry Wallace uh, said, uh, or learned of a race riot in Detroit. It was a, there were a number of race riots during World War II. And one of the things I seek to bring out in the book is that uh, the United States was far from united during World War II, that there was, in fact, a great deal of conflict. And civil rights activists like A. Philip Randolph and others were really pressing in this moment for uh, progress on especially a host of racial issues in a country that still had immense amounts of segregation, uh, horrific discrimination and violence. And these race riots broke out uh, not just in southern cities, but in northern cities like Detroit. There in, in the summer of 1943, dozens of people were killed uh, in riots that saw uh, African-American workers attacked and frankly attacked in some cases uh, in circumstances where the, the role of the police was incredibly troubling. Uh, most politicians would have stayed away from that. Henry Wallace chose to fly into the circumstance. He appeared at a mass rally with an integrated audience, and he said, people need to understand that the forces we are fighting against in Europe, fascists, Nazis, believe in separating people based on their race and their religion. And he suggested that American racists at that time were practicing a form of Americanized fascism. This horrified uh, the New York Times, which accused him of being divisive. So imagine this. Here's a, uh, a progressive saying that uh, we really need to call out racism. And the New York Times said, hey, 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 you know, chill out a little on that. We've got to all stay united. And Wallace said, no, we have to talk about these things because ultimately these are the challenges that we have to address going out of World War II and so even in the midst of the war. Um, finally, the New York Times asked Wallace to defend himself uh, by writing an essay on what he was talking about. 
in the spring of 1944, he produced an essay titled The Dangers of American Fascism. And it was a it filled much of the New York Times magazine on a Sunday in April. And what he said was that fascism existed in America and that while it did not take the same form as European fascism, it in fact had many of the same threats to democracy and to human progress. And one of the things he pointed out was that the American fascists would choose to use the media and would choose to use political channels to try and divide people so that multinational corporations and powerful forces who had economic and political power could extend their power by dividing the great mass of people. Um, He effectively anticipated uh, an awfully lot about later politics in this country. But at the time, he was not he was not welcomed for those statements and his suggestion that racism uh, sexism, uh, that these divisive policies and these divisive practices actually harmed uh, the war effort and would harm the period after the war, and that the United States needed to abandon colonialism, imperialism, uh, and and frankly, an economic disparity that was so deep that you you literally impoverished people uh, in in their jobs and in their in their lack of work. So as he talked about all of this, uh, a a mounting effort came to knock him off the ticket in 1944. They didn't want Henry Wallace to remain. And instead of trying to cut deals, Wallace went to Roosevelt and he said, look, you know, if you want me gone, I'll I'll quit. And Roosevelt said, no, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to get in the middle of this fight because we're so wrapped up in World War II. and it's a difficult reelection. And frankly, Roosevelt compromised. But Roosevelt did write a note to the Democratic Convention in which he said, if I was a delegate, I'd vote for Henry Wallace. And uh, that note was read to the convention. But the organizers of the convention said, well, you see, but he didn't really mean it. Um, and they were rapidly manipulating to try and prevent Wallace from being the nominee. The problem was, that what he had done over the previous uh, number of months as he traveled across the country and met with African-Americans, Latinos, members of the Jewish community, uh, working class people, trade unionists, women's rights activists, he had built a coalition that was incredibly uh, potent. Polls showed that he was the most popular prospect to run as Roosevelt's running mate in uh, 1944. And so they got to the convention. Wallace showed up with a bag just his own, carrying his own bag, went to his own hotel, had no organized organization. They weren't going to let him speak at the convention, but they finally let him uh, get up on the on the podium to second Roosevelt's nomination. Instead of giving a conciliatory address, he said the Democratic Party needs to reject racism, sexism, the divisive politics that's used to pull the working class apart and, in fact, embrace a politics that is truly progressive. It was a, an incredibly robust message. He called out the poll tax. He called out the segregationists. He essentially told many people who were on the floor of that convention that they that where they stood was wrong. And instead of uh, driving the convention away from him, it provoked an incredible outcry. The floor erupted, and there was a, a demand that Wallace be renominated. Um, the at the convention. Claude Pepper, who went on to become the great defender of civil rights, was Wallace's great supporter on the floor. When the demonstration broke out, he started to make his way toward the podium. He wanted to 
get the Democratic convention to renominate Roosevelt and Wallace that night to just do it right away. And um, and he was and he knew that if he got to the podium and, and was co- able to call the question, Wallace would be renominated and everything would be different. Literally, um, you would have a progressive vice president uh, there when Franklin Roosevelt died um, just weeks after uh, being sworn in for his fourth term. Uh, they obviously didn't know Roosevelt was going to die, but they didn't know that he was in ill health. Um, and they also knew the challenges of the moment. So Pepper started racing to the stage. He was allowed onto the stage by trade unionists who controlled the gate and were uh, sympathetic to Wallace. He started going up the steps to the podium and the organizers of the convention, literally the leadership of the party, started yelling to gavel the convention closed. Um, the chair of the convention said, I can't do it. The crowd is so overwhelmingly, you know, for Henry Wallace, they want to keep, they want to do this. And Pepper got closer and closer to within just a few feet. And finally, one of the big bosses from Pittsburgh yelled, shut it down. And the chairman of the convention said, there's been motion to adjourn. The crowd roared its disapproval. And the chairman said, I hear uh, support for the motion and gabbled the convention out of order. Through that night, they restructured uh, passes to the convention. Deals were cut. All the backroom politics that you can imagine occurred. And the next day when the vote came, Henry Wallace was voted off the ticket. Now, what the Democratic Party did there in 1944 was to reject a visionary political figure who called for a politics of economic and social and racial justice, and who also called for respect for the planet and ultimately for aiming toward having peace in the aftermath of World War II, not building up toward a new Cold War. It was an incredibly critical moment for the Democratic Party, and it set in place a politics of compromise and caution that I would argue exists to this day. So my book begins with the story of Wallace's struggles and and what he stood for, but then it extends from there, going right up to the current moment. Uh, I look at the uh, way in which the party undermined uh, the civil rights campaigners of the 1950s to such an extent that Adam Clayton Powell, the leading African-American political figure in the Democratic Party at that time, endorsed Dwight Eisenhower for re-election in 1956, saying that the Democrats were never going to get segregation right. They were never going to abandon it. And uh, and so he endorsed Eisenhower, as did Wallace, by the way, in 1956, to break away from uh, this politics that, that so offended him. Take it through the 60s with the great struggles of 1968, and again, the party's rejection of the anti-war movement at a point when had it embraced uh, Eugene McCarthy and uh, before his assassination, Bobby Kennedy might well have uh, entered into another transformational moment. The undermining of George McGovern's campaign in 1972, when Democrats uh, who had nominated McGovern for president, then uh, in many cases formed uh, uh, anti-McGovern groups, forming a national group called Democrats for Nixon, which sought to um, literally uh, prevent McGovern from getting elected. Then um, uh, there was uh, the the great struggles of the 1970s uh, between uh, Michael Harrington, what became DSA and others, a lost part of the history, Jesse Jackson's 1988 campaign, uh, in which Jackson should have been the nominee for vice president, but instead the very boring Lloyd Benson was chosen again and again and again. The stories of how the Democratic Party has pulled its punches, compromised, undermined not just itself, but really 
uh, the possibility of a politics that was broader and better. And the argument I conclude with is that the Democratic Party has done great harm to itself and great harm to the, the politics of this country by constantly compromising, by constantly pulling its punches. It isn't that the Democratic Party hasn't done good things along the way. It isn't that the Democratic Party isn't in many ways preferable to the Republican Party, especially today. But it is to suggest that that pattern of compromise has been so destructive that there really needs to be a new politics. And people will debate you know, how to go about that new politics. My argument is, uh, and I argue it in the closing chapter, that we see openings for, for taking things in a very different way. The roots of that go back to Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign and extend through the rise of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ro Khanna, and other figures who've really sought to come back. They have not succeeded at every turn. Obviously, Sanders uh, uh, not successful in this year's campaign. But this fundamental notion, uh, I traveled at the end of the, for the end of the book to Wallace's farm in Iowa and uh, walked the field with Bernie Sanders and talked about this legacy of a FDR, uh, Wallace, New Deal vision for the Democratic Party. Um, and that was very, it was a vital conversation and, and obviously recount that. But the book closes actually in Detroit, where Wallace gave his great speech um, against racism in 1943. And I was there with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, not far from where Wallace spoke. It was late at night at an uh, Arab American bakery. And we were in the parking lot and we had talked a great deal about Roosevelt and, and Wallace and, and a lot of these issues. And, uh, and she paused and she said, you know, I want to be that party again. And it isn't that she was saying she wanted to go back to 1944 or to, um, you know, many of the compromises and failures at that time. What she was saying is that the Democratic Party at one time for a brief period entertained the notion of being a progressive party, a genuinely progressive party that challenged racism, that challenged economic inequality, that challenged uh, militarism and profiteering. Um, it chose in 1944 not to be that party going forward. And I would argue that a struggle began that has not ended to this day, but it is encouraging to me that there are people who I think recognize what that struggle is about and are prepared to take it forward. And with that, I'll turn it back to Tony. Hi, everybody, again. Um, and John, I think, has made this incredibly uh, compelling, important case for rescuing Henry Wallace from obscurity uh, to the extent that he was. Um, but look, he was a vice president, at least. So um, he has, Henry Wallace has a leg up on the subject of my book, The Farm <laughs> Women Workers, right? Um, a union that was never very big, no longer exists, and and has been pretty much uh, entirely overlooked even by labor historians. Um, my focus also is on the FE's um, ultra contentious relationship with International Harvester, a company that went out of business in the 1980s. So John had to make the case for his book 
I have to make the case for telling my story. Um, and I do it this way. International Harvester was one of the country's founding industrial empires, once the fourth largest corporation in the world, controlled by the McCormick family, who traced their anti-union animus back to the Haymarket bombing, and who pioneered industrial relations practices to stymie organizing that have become standard procedure for businesses today. Yet this tremendously powerful enterprise would be successfully challenged by the, in the 1930s by the communist-influenced farm equipment workers, the FE, whose leaders maintained a conscious and off-stated affinity with the Haymarket martyrs. The McCormicks were finally obliged to sign a contract with the FE in 1938, but this marked not the end, but merely a transition in the bitter battle between company and union. For into the 1940s and 50s, the FE maintained an extraordinarily militant, remained an extraordinarily militant organization. And why do I say that? Because the class conscious FE leadership vociferously rejected the possibility of mutually beneficial, cooperatively achieved economic growth that came to define the ideology of the labor establishment in the, in the years following World War II. The philosophy of our union, one FE official proclaimed, is that management has no right to exist. International Harvester's president wasn't entirely wrong when he pronounced in 1947 that the FE's leaders were irresponsible radicals who are more interested in disruption than in labor management peace. In practical terms, this meant aggressive stewardship and contentious agitation on the shop floor, which was evident in the astonishingly high level of walkouts that FE members engaged in. Between 1946 and 1954, there were over 1,000 work stoppages at the dozen or so international harvester plants represented by the FE, a figure that dwarfed the other, in the case that other plants represented, say, like by the United Auto Workers, for example. Moreover, the FE, which organized farm equipment plants throughout the American heartland, maintained a noteworthy commitment to interracial unionism. So while the union's membership was about 80% white, from 1946 on, the FE had an African-American vice president and another black member on its executive board, while other unions in that period with much larger black memberships like the UAW, the Steelworkers, the United Electrical Workers had no African-Americans in top leadership positions. While other unions shied away from such battles, the FE also pushed for and won contract terms like plant-wide seniority that especially benefited black workers. These things had an impact. At the International Harvester Plant that opened in Louisville in 1946, the FE local there engendered a deeply felt transformative sense of solidarity among the membership that overcame the racial animosity that had been long entrenched in that segregated city. So all that is detailed in my book, but since we're specifically talking about politics today, let me touch on the FE in that regard as well. As one of those unions deemed to be communist dominated, the FE from early on was subject to a red baiting barrage, not just from international harvesters management, but from the government, the press and the anti-communist labor establishment. Indeed, the FE would be one of those unions expelled from the CIO in 1949. 
One of the principal reasons cited as proof of the FE's communist affiliation was the union's endorsement of Henry Wallace's Progressive Party bid of 1948. In fact, as I discuss in my book, the FE was probably union, the union that demonstrated the deepest commitment to the Wallace campaign. The FE's president, Grant Oaks, for instance, was the progressive candidate for governor of Illinois. And FE rank and filers, especially African-Americans, and particularly in Louisville, also became heavily involved in that campaign. One of the points I make is that despite the clearly electoral failure of the progressive effort, this grassroots organizing for Wallace would have a lasting and significant impact as many of those union members would take what they learned organizing for the progressive party and apply it to early civil rights struggles in Louisville. So that's something that may interest those of you who are involved, have been involved in organizing for Bernie Sanders. But another point I'd like to make, and before we move into, into discussion, is that for the radical Marxist leaders of the FE, the Wallace effort of 1948 did not in any sense represent an effort to redeem the soul of the Democratic Party, for the party, in their view, had long moved past redemption. They genuinely subscribed to those tenets in the Progressive Party platform, uh, such as this. Today, private power has constituted itself an invisible government which pulls the strings of its puppet Republican and Democratic parties. Both represent a single program, a program of monopoly profits through war preparations, lower living standards, and suppression of dissent. The old parties acting for the forces of special privilege deny the Negro people the rights of citizenship. They impose a universal policy of Jim Crow and enforce it with every weapon of terror. They refuse to allow its most bestial expression, the crime of lynching, to outlaw its most bestial expression, the crime of lynching. They refuse to abolish the poll tax, and year after year, they deny the vote to Negroes and millions of white people in the South. They aim to reduce nationality groups to a position of social, economic, and political inferiority. So for Henry Wallace's touted common man, as far as the class-conscious FE leadership was concerned, the enemy was not a particular political party, but rather a hegemonic economic system, namely capitalism. The labor establishment, most prominently Walter Ruther of the UAW, with its condemnation of the Wallace effort, unequivocally hitched itself to the Democratic Party and thus signed on to a future defined by reform and unfettered economic growth rather than radical change and resistance to capital accumulation. This may not have been how Henry Wallace himself saw it, and, and we can talk about that in discussion, but for the committed radicals in the FE, those union organizers, the 1948 campaign was not about establishing a course correction, but instead represented a necessary clean break from the Democratic Party. Today, private power is still pulling the strings of the Democratic Party, though more visibly, perhaps, than was true in 1948. So for today's labor activists, especially those socialist-leaning ones, I'd suggest a close look at the 1948 Progressive Party effort for better and for worse. And the for worse part includes how difficult mounting a third-party challenge in America has been. But I'd argue that it was anomalous and not somehow representative of the more progressive traditions of the Democratic Party. 
It was far more threatening than that, which is why the Wallace campaign had to be so totally crushed, and also why Henry Wallace himself, at least one of the reasons why he's been removed from the pantheon of Democratic heroes. So I'm going to toss something else out there, which is not actually much discussed in my book. Um, we, John and I were talking about it a little bit before this started. Um, it springs, though, I will say, from my um, long interest in farm equipment and all things agricultural. Um, I actually think you can make the argument that Henry Wallace's enduring significance and his own contradictory personal legacy are maybe perhaps most rooted and most obvious in his other career as a businessman and agricultural visionary who was the first to understand the possibilities of hybrid corn, genetic engineering, in other words. Wallace's creation of Pioneer Hybrid Company in 1926 would morph into a multi-billion dollar operation that became part of DuPont in 1999. Now, nearly all corn grown is hybrid corn. Wallace was drawn to hybrid corn because he believed that it offered the possibility of eradicating hunger at home and abroad. He shared that faith in increased production as a panacea, what is referred to in my book as the politics of productivity, with other Democratic liberals like Walter Ruther, who saw an increased industrial output, a formula for labor management peace. Hybrid corn, because it grows straighter and more uniformly than natural, natural seed corn, allows for easier harvesting and led to exponentially higher yields. But hybrid corn seed also needs to be purchased every year, tying farmers to behemoth seed companies. And hybrid crops also brought with them more mechanization, the growth of corporatized farming, monoculture, the increased use of petroleum and chemical fertilizer, and all those issues which have contributed to environmental degradation. By revolutionizing agriculture, Wallace somewhat ironically created global corporate agribusiness. These contradictions were at play when Wallace visit me visited Mexico in 1940 as Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Agriculture. The visit was typical Wallace. He drove his own car around the country, visiting many small villages, and was greeted enthusiastically wherever he went, and perhaps most especially since he spoke fluent Spanish. He was moved by the poverty he encountered and how hard peasants worked. But rather than embrace what left-wing activists in Mexico were seeking, that is sweeping land reform, communal farming, and nationalization of industry, Wallace instead, in the words of one historian, emphasized gringo know-how, big production, modern technology, American expertise. Once he became vice president, Wallace fostered a joint project between the American and Mexican governments and the Rockefeller Foundation that introduced the American model to the Mexican countryside, hybrid seeds, monoculture, agrochemical inputs, and mechanization. Wallace thus subscribed to, as one historian noted, the belief that rural hunger and poverty could be tackled and eradicated in an apolitical matter, manner by applying American expertise and scientific technique without any need for social critique or political activism, and especially without distributing lands to the poor. Like so many liberal Democrats, Henry Wallace believed that good intentions coupled with faith and increased production could somehow circumvent rapacious capitalism. He was wrong about that, in my view, as I concur with the Progressive Party in 1948, that private power has constituted itself an invisible government 
which undermines the interests of working people at home and abroad. Now, speaking personally and as a historian, I'm cautious about whether a genuine labor-based third party here is a realistic possibility either. So I'm not going to say that anything short of revolutionary activity is unworthy. You'll have to read also about what happened to the FE to see why I say that. But I also just want to be clear-eyed about what the Democratic Party is and isn't. Um, what Democratic administrations, I would argue, offer at best, and this was definitely true during the New Deal, is space for activists to do the grassroots organizing that is the real mainspring of radical change. And I'm not sure where that leaves us about what to do in November, but that can be part of our ongoing discussion. And so now we're going to get into it between um, John and I. And can I just throw out a question to you, John, first? Absolutely. I mean, one of the really important and timely aspects of your book is um, your, and it's in the subtitle, is your consideration of Wallace's opposition to American fascism. So I'm wondering how, and I, you talked about this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what you say in the book about that, what that meant to Wallace then, what it means now, and what you might think the Democratic Party should be doing to counter that threat? That's a terrific question. Thanks for your good comments, sir. Uh, um, it, look, Wallace and and, and I want to emphasize, he was not alone in this. There were a number of folks in in the midst of World War II uh, who understood that uh, fascism was would have many different definitions, that it would take many different forms. But at, at the heart of it, it would merge uh, economic and political power uh, in the interest of the perpetuation of that economic and political power. Wallace uh, was obsessed with the role that monopolies played in, um, in you know, dominating not just business, but also government. So in many senses, he anticipated, though, as you well point out, imperfectly, he anticipated what we would come to today. And that is a situation where corporations are so overwhelmingly powerful um, so dominant in our in our economic life and our political life that they effectively set the rules of the game. They define how far you can you can push the limits of a discussion. And uh, it's an interesting thing that I, I recommend for folks, and I've I've got it in the book. And uh, but I recommend for folks reading uh, Wallace's essay on the dangers of American fascism. It was one of the reasons I wrote the book actually because. I'm on Twitter, as we all are, or as many of us are, and I would tweet sections of Wallace's statements about American fascism written in 1944, and people would immediately respond by saying, whoa, that sounds an awfully lot like stuff we're looking at now. And not just with Donald Trump, really with a, a constrained and limited politics that does not allow for that broader discourse that is necessary, for that broader critique. And, and so, my sense is that that what Wallace was was anticipating, and frankly, he was an evolving guy. He moved politically, um, you know, through many gradations, and I write a lot about that in the book. But my sense is that um, he became so deeply frustrated with the Democratic Party that he essentially abandoned it. And uh, first with the progressive campaign, but then in the 1950s, you know, literally just saying, you know, stepping away from politics altogether. Uh, but there was something in his argument 
that I think is at the heart of it. And that's the one thing I would, would bring to the current day. And that is that he identified American fascism as a practice that would seek to uh, deepen and worsen race relations, that would seek to exploit racial disparity and racial differences um, for political purposes, and that it would certainly affect African-Americans, but also Latinos uh, and other groups. And, and my sense is that this has been, you know, one of the ongoing realities of our politics all the way through. And uh, it is remarkable to me that the Democratic Party has struggled, frankly, with so many of the same issues and, and struggled to identify itself as effectively as it could. And so, I, Tony, I take your critique uh, <laughs> on, on uh, the Democratic Party and, and I share many of your views. Uh, I happen to think that uh, that at this point, this wrestling for the soul of the Democratic Party is uh, it is a long term process. It's gone on for a very long time. And some people have been at it for for decades. Um, it's deeply frustrating and deeply challenging. Um, but it does, in this case, perhaps this year, circle us back to some of those old popular front thoughts of the, the 1940s and the notion that there are dangers that are that are greater um, and more extreme, and I would I would go so far as to suggest the second term for Donald Trump is a, is indeed a great danger, and that is why an awfully lot of folks are inclined in this moment uh, not to jump on board with the Democratic Party, but to accept its its circumstances, its necessity at this moment, and that's one of the reasons why the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party is such a big deal, because if in our terribly constrained political system, where we don't allow for the multi-party politics that would, would be so, frankly, enriching and enlivening, uh, if, if we have this narrow politics, then we can't just have the progressive movements jump on board with the Democratic Party every four years and say, oh, we got to back these guys. What has to happen is a, a wrestling to make the Democratic Party into something fundamentally different than it is. And so, that's a, if you will, a, a third track to go down. So that, that's my answer to your question. Now, let me ask you a question, Tony. Yes. Um, I'm also, I'm sorry if I, if I should be looking over here, but that's because I'm getting questions from, we could, we should being, go to that are being sent in to me. So I'm looking at them, which with many of which involve this, just obviously this question of third party or not third party, what should we, we should be doing? Explore. So, yeah. So go ahead and ask me and then I'll throw some of these questions go deep into that. And I'm delighted to go there. And frankly, I'm delighted to hear what people have to say, because I think this is still a, an open and refreshing debate, to be honest. I, I like this discourse about what political parties should be and what they shouldn't be and how they should be pressured. Um, but I want to ask you about the FE, uh, because, you know, while we've focused a lot on Wallace here, um, one of the things that's fascinating about the FE is that it had a political journey and that political journey was uh, aligned, you know, with the Democratic Party in 1944 and, and at, at certain points along the way, uh, but also willing to break out of it to kind of do inside and outside strategies. But I'm intrigued by this. I think one of the lost parts of history is that there was a great movement in the 1940s for civil rights, for racial justice. There were unions that were stepping up. A. Philip Randolph 
was traveling the country as a civil rights leader, appearing before tens of thousands of people during World War II. Wallace was speaking out against racism. So too was Wendell Wilkie, the former Republican candidate. And I'm, I guess it's really a question for you as a historian. How did so much of this history get lost? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we have a sense that there's sort of a reinvention of the wheel, you know, that we, we kind of, you know, oh, that nothing happened up to this point, when in fact, there are deep roots to, to racial justice movements that, that we can find in the 1930s and 1940s. Well, I'm gonna, first I'm going to speak up, defend my fellow historians, because I think historians have actually been telling this story for quite some time. Um, and in fact, Robin Kelly, who's going to be speaking um, next week at one of these events, is one of those historians who has been telling this tale for quite some time, the importance of those earlier struggles that led to, that um, fed into the civil rights movement that we think you know began um, at a little bit later point. So you can find the those books out there, um, many of them are local studies and they're incredibly important. So, um, so that, you know, that, that's been something that historians have paid attention to for a bit, but, but why is it obscured in, in our larger history? I think in part because, um, we want to focus on sort of the, triumphal fixing of things, you know, in the, in terms of the civil rights movement, as though that has, that happened and things got, we eliminated school segregation and we, um, and we opened access to things. And so, um, so that, um, so we don't have that same kind of, those same kind of struggles going on. They didn't last as long. And again, I would say with the FE, looking at this history that I tell of their fight in Louisville, I think part of it was that again, there, the argument that they were raising is that racism springs not from uh, some that um, isn't just it isn't just part of American life. It was created by corporations, by companies, by businesses, um, by landholders who seek to exploit um, perceived differences between uh, African-Americans and white people for their own advantages. And so the FE really pressed that point in segregated racist Louisville and managed to convince both white and black workers in this local, um, managed to um, make them see that reality, that it was International Harvester that benefited when both sets of workers thought that they um, actually had, that they didn't have common interests. And it was when they fought together against a wage scale that Harvester wanted to impose in its southern plants that was lower than the, than the wages they were paying up north when they fought together to over turn that Southern differential, as it was called, that both African-American and white workers recognize their common interests. So um, I think that looking back at those struggles that weren't just about, um, say, uh, opportunity, but were about economic justice and exactly who it is who benefits from racism, I think that long history is something that, um, yes, that we need to, to pay more attention to. And it's one of the focuses of my book. And I, and I guess I would also you know turn it back to you that part of what is important that's vital, I think, for that kind of progress is an active 
vibrant, big labor movement. And so we had that in the 30s. We had it in the 40s and and in the 1950s. And that's when you start to see the decline. So the extent to which we can revitalize um, the Democratic Party, create a third party, create any kind of really lasting progressive change depends on a strong labor movement. And so that's part, one of the missing links here um, in, you know, in this progressive discussing the progressive party or the democratic party is where is the labor movement and what has the democratic party done to support the labor movement? It's what helped build the democratic party to begin with. It's what distinguished the democratic party in the 1930s and forties from the, um, from the Republican party. And it's, you know, it's, it's so bringing that labor story into um, any discussion of democratic party politics, I think is, is vital. And I, um, so I you more on that. And let me uh, two quick things before we, we go to some questions here. Number one, um, you talk about the Louisville uh, local of you of FE. And it's significant that Wallace had a, had a, a very warm place in his heart for that local. In fact, appeared um, on more than one occasion in Louisville and uh, in his uh, during his 1948 campaign celebrated. Uh, the the Louisville local, and I'll paraphrase here, but essentially said that they sent a message to Wall Street that that differentiation between Southern workers and and Northern workers would no longer be allowed, and and really championed them as a visionary union. That's where you know our two books I think start to come together. Right. The right. other element is that's important is that when Wallace went to Louisville and to other Southern cities in 1948. And I write a lot about this in the book. There are just certain things that that a political candidate can or cannot do what they choose to do as regards the labor movement. And of course, Wallace refused to cross picket lines, um, even when it might have been beneficial to his campaign to get publicity or something like that. Wallace also refused to appear before uh, segregated audiences. And one of the, I think, lost parts of our political history is the story of that 1948 campaign where he campaigned throughout the South, um, town to town, uh, at huge rallies, uh, but refused to use uh, segregated venues, refused to stay in hotels that uh, barred African-Americans, refused to eat at restaurants that barred African-Americans. And the, the message that was sent there of solidarity, of saying, you know, I'm, I support these labor struggles. I refuse to be a part of something that is unacceptable is something that I think too many Democrats have, have fallen away from in in the years that extend from there. And I do think that that sense of solidarity, right, that that sense of duty to join the picket line. And I, and I give Bernie Sanders credit for this. He did join picket lines. And because of that, in, in the 2020 race, a number of other candidates felt they they needed to do so as well. But that's that's such a lost part of our politics. And it's one thing that I deal with a lot in the book is this argument that um, you know, Truman comes to the presidency in 1945, 1946, the, the Democrats lose control of the house or lose, essentially lose control of Congress. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1976 and in 78 suffers a severe setback, uh, in the congressional elections. Clinton becomes president in 1992, two years later, Democrats lose their, their essentially lose their ability to govern uh, in, in a whole sense because of setbacks in congressional elections. Barack Obama becomes president in 2008, two years later, 
a Republican wave sweeps in and and disempowers that administration in so many ways. And you can blame the Republicans. You say, well, you know, darn you for winning. But the fact of the matter is that I think, Tony, this goes to the heart of what you're raising here. When you come to power, right, why don't you start with labor law reform? Why don't you start with, you know, knocking down the barriers to organizing and actually saying, no, this is a party that is in favor of labor, that wants labor to be strong? Well, the answer to that question, especially if you look at someone like Bill Clinton, uh, is that 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 wasn't their desire. That they had they had moved themselves over so far into the corporate camp that their desire was to do NAFTA. Their desire was to do trade deals that labor militantly opposed. And and so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that Wallace and others throughout history, Jesse Jackson and others along the way, have argued that the Democratic Party had to actually stand for something. And I would suggest to you that this is a fascinating thing, that fascinating reality. I think the Democratic Party has harmed itself tremendously by not standing for things, by you know, coming to power and not, not you know, extending the, the strength of labor, instead coming to power and not you know, going deep on, on fundamental issues of race and gender and others. It, when you do that, yes, you will offend some folks, right? And maybe you will take stands that will offend Wall Street, but you actually build a movement politics. And to my view, Wallace wanted that as imperfect as he was. Um, I think there have been other candidates along the way who wanted that, but they have been regularly undermined and they have been regularly marginalized. And so the question becomes, do you uh, do you leave the party? Right. Do you try to form a third party? And that's a, a credible argument throughout our history. Um, or do you recognize, I think, at a more at a deeper sense that you're in a fight, that this isn't you know, it's not a family squabble. There are two forces fighting for the soul of the Democratic Party. One force is Wall Street and is incredibly corporate uh, and will uh, play the dirtiest politics it can. Um, the other force has to is progressive. It is, I think, visionary and it has to make demands. It has to it has to to fight at a, at a much more fundamental level, um, because otherwise we end up with this politics of a victory and then a setback, a victory and then a setback. And instead of having an arc of history that, that bends toward progress, we have an arc of history that keeps getting interrupted. Yeah, and I, I guess I would say that those people who have grown dispirited with the Democratic Party in this um, you know, current, current um, generation uh, would argue that perhaps this is, you know, the, these losses, the electoral losses are exactly what the Democratic Party in fact, kind of wants, right? It, it, that the people who really, again, those people who, who are really running the show and controlling both parties are getting exactly what they want. And we've got a Democratic Party that now, much more so even than um, was ever true before, is made up themselves of elected officials who are 
millionaires, billionaires who, as you detail in your book, of course, are taking um, money, big, big contributions from big, big corporations as well. And so can we expect a different Democratic Party? Is the Democratic Party, in fact, exactly fulfilling the vision that has exactly the soul that is intended is is the is the big debate about whether this kind you know, these these progressive tendencies that harken back to earlier periods, whether they will ever be um, able to uh, to really reclaim or build a new Democratic Party is is the open question. And I want to return to your discussion of Wallace and his tour in the South, because um, to the extent that I'm critical of Wallace, that's something for which he needs to be given um, incredible credit and because the the courage and the commitment that was involved in that tour of the South, which wasn't just Wallace, people like Paul Robeson were also going into um, incredibly dangerous territory, literally risking their lives to make the case for this kind of interracial um, commitment for this for this party with this different vision, and trying to explain not just to exploited black workers, but also to exploited deeply racist white workers, what the um, what the reasons for those divisions were, and who was really benefiting for them from them, um, and so Wallace's when Wallace went to Louisville, he didn't stay in one of the swankier downtown hotels that refused admittance to African Americans. He stayed in a hotel in a small motel in the in the African American section of town that, generally speaking, only hosted um, African Americans. So you know, so that that Henry Wallace did things like that, distinguished him then and now, I think, from most politicians who might speak all kinds of of, uh, lofty, make all sorts of lofty proclamations about how much they care about the poor and downtrodden, but would never um, put themselves at risk in that, in the way that that Wallace really did politically and and literally put himself um, at risk. so I think that kind of distinction between genuine action and rhetoric is one that's also important. What are politicians really doing? Those ones who proclaim how much they love the labor movement. When's the last time they really spent time when well, they didn't just show up to the picket line because everybody else is now going and it's making the national news. So, you know, the notion that, that you know, so this is what drew, I think, young activists to Bernie Sanders campaign. Not only had he, you know, had he talked the talk, but he literally had has, had been walking that walk for a long time, um, and people could trust that he would be there, not just for the cameras, but um, when it when it really mattered. So, do we have those? Do we have that ability within the Democratic Party? enough of those people to actually transform the party into people who go beyond those sound bites for the media to actual action. And again, I think that's going to happen when these activists continue their work at the grassroots level in union halls, in places that aren't organized, and continue that agitation to either affect the Democratic Party or move in different directions. But we're seeing that locally. I mean, one of the things also, John, to get into is, you know, your focus um, and and obviously so much political party focus is national. And, you know, now we're seeing all this interesting activity going on here in Chicago, for example, with the election of all our socialist aldermen um, locally. So, um, 
So, you know, so is politics, you know, does politics matter most up here or down here? Do we want to look at grassroots activism and not just electoral activism, but union organizing? You know, what what are the ways in which we really measure um, where change is going on and what what those ripple effects are going to be? So, so yeah, go ahead. And then I'll start I'll start to pick some of these questions. One thing aligned with what you just said, which is so vital, um, you know, it's it. One of the things that people often talk about, and one of the things I really try to avoid in my book, is this tendency to think that the Democratic Party just goes on its track by itself, and that the elites within the Democratic Party do their thing, progressives may challenge them. The fact is that political parties are always influenced by movements. And um, one of the heroes of my book is A. Philip Randolph, the leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And the fascinating thing about Randolph was he never endorsed anybody. He just organized a union that was absolutely committed to civil rights. And he challenged Democratic and Republican presidents uh, for their failures in this regard. And it does strike me that that one of the great challenges as regards uh, the Democratic Party is that many labor unions give themselves to the Democratic Party um, so willingly, right? They they they're on board as soon as the nominee is you know barely identified in the distance, and and I would argue that unions have to make much bigger demands on both parties, but especially on the Democratic Party because it is at this point a more sympathetic party on at least some issues. And and that lack of a demand isn't as harmful to unions, although obviously unions have, have suffered a lot over the decades. That lack of a demand is actually harmful to the Democratic Party. Because it when you when there isn't movement pressure from outside a party on it to be better than it is, um, then that party will bend more and more to the money. Right. And so movements, movements become a real factor in all of this. And yes, local movements are particularly impactful because they, you know, you, you're, you're in contact with people. It's, it's a direct reality. And my sense is that some of the most interesting things going on as regards our politics uh, are, are today at the local level. But the local level isn't just for a city council. The local level is also for a race for Congress. And challenging an incumbent. You know, it's very interesting to me that when we look at our, our epic figures in politics, there are often people who challenge incumbents. Uh, and and it's shocking to me that the horrifying that the Democratic Party now punishes, it tries to punish people for sh- challenging incumbents. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez challenged an incumbent and won. So too did Bella Abza. So too did Ron Dellums. So too did Ro Khanna. The, the fact of the matter is, if we look through history, you know, fights within a party at the congressional district level, at the legislative district level, at the at the local level are incredibly vital and, and I would argue necessary. And um, one of the things that big money takes away is the the often historically has taken away the likelihood of those fights. And so as as Sanders identified a way to fund campaigns with small donations, that makes it much easier to mount those challenges uh, to, frankly, uh, Democrats who who really are uh, extensions of the establishment, it's extensions of the elites. And it's a, I think in this sense, we have entered into an interesting moment and one where the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party 
might be able to take on uh, new challenges and perhaps be more successful than it has been for a good long time. Well, I, and I want to, you're uh, mentioning fights about incumbents. I mean, one of the interesting, I would say, um, suggestions of how um, entrenched and corrupt the Democratic Party is, is like, is what's happening in Massachusetts with Joe Kennedy, right? I mean, there's an incumbent, there's yeah. an incumbent who doesn't seem to, who is being challenged and who doesn't seem to be running into the same issues that progress, that, that genuinely progressive challengers to incumbents have um, received, right? And also in terms of unions standing aside and, or other um, uh, progressive groups standing aside and saying, um, and, and waiting on those endorsements or holding back their endorsements, you know, runs up against the uh, oft repeated mantra of vote blue, no matter who, right? And certainly in this, in this instance, in this Trump era, you know, the idea that, um, that you should be uh, thoughtful or, or possibly refrain from voting for, a, for, a, uh, for not just an imperfect candidate, but a candidate who represents all kinds of really objectionable things, but who happens to be a Democrat, is not something that the establishment tolerates at all, obviously, um, in the Democratic establishment. I mean, so, so it's difficult to, to, um, to reconcile those two notions, that the Democratic Party's reform will come when powerful entities that support it, like labor unions um, withhold endorsements unless unless the Democratic Party does what's good for working people with this overriding notion that you have to vote Democrat, you must vote blue no matter who because because look at the alternative, which which is at which is a compelling argument. So I'm not sure where that um, momentum for genuine reform is going to come from in this um, in this truly um, heinous era we're living through in the in, with the Trump administration. So. Um, because there's all kinds of compelling argument, as I said in the conclusion of my remarks, that 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 having a Democratic administration, even one headed by Joe Biden, will give activists space to move at the at the grassroots level that they wouldn't have under a, a Trump administration under, under a second Trump administration. So much as I sympathize with the um, vehement criticisms of the Democratic Party then and now, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly um, compelled by that, by the, by the case that we can't have another four years of, of Trump and expect to see progress for working um, people. So, so I think, but I understand the, the conflict. I think it's a difficult question. And the idea of also um, third party formation is really difficult. And, People should read your book and my book to see how difficult that was. And in Illinois, the Progressive Party wasn't even allowed on the ballot um, because um, party officials here uh, finagled the ballot and kept them kept kept so kept Henry Wallace and Grant Oaks, the FE president and gubernatorial candidate, off the ballot. So part of the reason for the disaster, the disastrous electoral results in 1948, were you know, I have a lot of explanations about what happened with Truman and people making the calculated choice that supporting the Democrats was better. But it was also because there was a total crackdown on uh, the progressive challenge. And so things like, you know, just manipulation, keeping people, keeping um, the party off the ballot was part of that effort, which, which, you know, one has to recognize 
Bernie Sanders needed to recognize it as an insurgent force within the Democratic Party and anybody outside the Democratic Party trying to to do something different would need to recognize that, you know, how how um, how strong the forces of resistance are. So um, and we saw that with the with what happened to 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 Bernie this time, I think. um, And what that means in the future is going to be decided by activists who helped to build that campaign, I believe. You're right. Um, Let me, I'm going to try to figure out how to do these questions from my phone. Um, So one I see is from Paul Mishler, who I happen to know is a professor at um, Indiana South Bend. He didn't identify himself that way, but I know him. So hi, Paul. How are you (laughs) <laughs> I am. And he said, and this is probably, well, this is, you, you should answer this, John, I think. How do you see the power of Southern segregationist Democrats, which is something you talk a lot about, as a right wing force in the Democratic Party? Is there a similar social or geographic base for the right in the Democratic Party today? So how do you counter that? That's a good question. That's a superb question. And thanks for thanks for raising it. Um, look, my book deals a lot with uh the Democratic Party is wrestling with race. And this is one of the complexities of the New Deal coalition that uh, many Democrats still suggest they want to recreate the New Deal coalition, right? They, they long for the, that coalition, which gave the party uh, huge victories, 60% of the vote for president, overwhelming victories in the House and the Senate. But it has to be understood that the New Deal coalition included socialists and bankers. It included civil rights campaigners, and it included vicious racists. I mean, people who literally fought against the laws banning lynching. They were within the Democratic Party. And so uh, the, the fact is, there was a, quote unquote, solid South. It is you know, what uh, Henry Wallace tried to battle against uh, and tried to upend it, arguing that you really could build a coalition there that would challenge it's what the FEE, what the FE sought to to take on. Um, now, what we know now is that that solid South kept the Democratic Party from a full embrace of civil rights until the 1960s, until literally movements forced the hand of the party. The party did not move there uh, on its own. In fact, it resisted it. Um, today, I think that you have fewer geographic uh Spaces, you know, there people don't. I don't think you talk so much about a solid, you know, West Coast or a solid New England or something like that. Although those regions have grown increasingly supportive of the Democratic Party, uh, now what you have is, to my mind, uh, a, a, a remarkably powerful corporate presence, and and a huge portion of the Democratic Party's finances at the national level coming from Wall Streeters, corporate interests, people aligned from them. And frankly, I I just quickly bring the media into this. And the media does a horrible thing as regards our politics. They do many horrible things as regards (laughs) our politics, but this is the most horrible. They, in my view, they suggest that politics has to be very, very narrow and that you're not viable, you're not real unless you raise a tremendous amount of money. And the way that most of these candidates raise a lot of money is from corporate interests, from, from special interests. Now, Sanders raised a lot of money. And weirdly enough, the media said, oh, well, Bernie Sanders, yeah, he's raising it from small contributions, but he's okay because he raised a lot. He still had a lot of money. So that's that's something 
vaguely credible there. But um, our media doesn't take a, a candidate or a party seriously if it refuses big money. And so what I would suggest is that today there is a, instead of a solid South that pulled the party to the right, there's a solid Wall Street. There's a solid Silicon Valley. Um, and those forces, it, they pull the party to the right. And the media then tells a lot of Democrats that that's, you know, that's just the way it has to be. And, um, and so some years ago, Bob McChesney and I wrote a book uh, called Dollarocracy. And um, we, we referred to, uh, coming off Eisenhower's military industrial complex, we described what we thought of as the media and money industrial complex. And to my mind, that's one of the things that that really constrains and undermines progressive uh, efforts within the Democratic Party. Frankly, I think you saw it in, in full form in the start of March when, uh, you know, suddenly on a particular night, all these candidates started dropping out and endorsing Joe Biden. And <laughs> and it was as if I mean, I, this was like CNN Christmas. You know, I mean, they were Oh, my gosh, look at this. Here's here's another, you know, candidate endorsing Joe Biden. And and I would go so far as to say, I, mean, I don't I don't think it's a radical statement at all that 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 actually did a tremendous service to Biden's candidacy, that it, it helped him tremendously on Super Tuesday, mm-hmm. uh, maybe to a point where had it not been, you know, celebrated as this amazing thing and just, you know, really uh, you know pumped up to this level again money, media coming together here, um, that Sanders might well have won Texas, uh, might well have, you know, had a different result that night. Um, and that, remember, I think this is one of the key things to understand about political history. Um, there are often narrow results and, you know, like slightly missed opportunities that rewrite history. And to my mind, uh, what happened in the start of March um, with, you know, just this this incredible media battering on Sanders and the incredible celebration of Biden um, was a a striking bit of evidence of how uh, the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party are influenced, again, first by money, Wall Street, those interests, but also by media that says, well, this is you can't go any farther than this. Don't be too interesting. Well, and I would say that one of the things that distinguishes the 1930s, 40s labor movement, maybe even across the political spectrum, is that labor leaders and working people understood then that corporate media conglomerates were not their friends. They were not objective and they were not their friends. So, you you know, if you were a worker in Chicago, you didn't read the Chicago Tribune. That was not where you were going to um, find uh, sympathetic stories about labor. I think now there's no perspective that comes um, from the labor movement suggesting that CNN and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times aren't anything except kind of objective media sources um, and that their corporate ownership doesn't doesn't trickle down to what it is they cover, the way in which they view news. And um, so that's something that has changed in terms of um, perspectives about media and coverage. Um, I'm going to answer a related question that um, someone 
Eric, Edward Elric, I think, says, um, they say that if the left doesn't harness the anger of the working class, the right will. It's related to your what you were answering. We see the effects with Trump. How do we break his national populism, especially in red states? And I'm going to address that initially just because the story that I tell of the FE in Louisville, I think really does have application to this question about the white working class, about white racism, about the deplorables um, and and what we, we should be doing about them. And what you had there is FE organizers, black and white, um, some of whom were from Louisville, some of whom we came from um, from elsewhere, going into this segregated town, assessing a situation in which a good portion of the workforce that they were going to be organizing was, you know, in the, in the words of one of um, the black uh, workers there, you know, absolutely as racist as you could get, you know, from, you know, legacies, traditions of racism um, from the white South. So it would, but, but the majority of workers in the plant were white. So it would have been easy for the union to just say, well, you know what, we'll soft pedal this race question. We'll, we'll say some nice things, you know, privately to the black workers about how we're going to um, help them out. But, you know, we're not going to really um, take this on because it's too dangerous. It's too dicey. And we, we won't win our representation election. we can't take on the company while we're addressing racism within the ranks. But they didn't do that. They met the problem head on. They told workers, white and black, that we are going to be an interracial union, that we're going to fight for everybody's um, right to get the better jobs in this plant. We're going to have plant-wide seniority. We're going to fight for those things that, that affect everyone and that benefit everyone equally. And shocking thing that union actually won its representation election against other unions that were running on much more racist appeals. They won that. They then go on to build this, um, this incredibly tight knit, um, local that then takes white and black, that then takes the struggles against racism into the larger Louisville community. So, um, and, and what's most affecting, I think in my book is that some of those white workers, um, who were interviewed, um, and, and a while ago, by the way, it connected to Anne Braden, the civil rights activist from Louisville, um, talked about their own personal struggles, that these were, that they came out of families that were still racist, that would still not, didn't want them to, even talking to um, black people. And, and they had had, they had personally struggled with that to overcome it and recognized now that they weren't any different from the black workers that they um, were sitting shoulder to shoulder with in the union hall. So, so it can be done. Challenging that kind of racism head on can be done. Um, and it's necessary to build that kind of interracial solidarity among working people in order to chat, in order to challenge the people who are really in charge, the 1% up there who are really benefiting from these divisions in society. Doesn't mean that there aren't, there isn't hardcore racism that can't be that, you know, some, some of whom are are irredeemable. But in terms of fighting for the soul of, uh, of the American working class, I think we need to take that struggle, not, not, not um, presume or deliver um, working people of any race to, to Trump. They, they, should, they should be in a party that, um, and represented by politics that um, rep truly represents the entire working class. So, um, so I think we fight that populism 
head on by trying to not by writing anybody off, but by telling people who are exploited that fighting that exploitation comes through um, working class unity. And and it, and there are examples in history that show that that kind of fight actually can um, succeed. And can I, can I yes, go, you should go ahead. I'm looking for more questions, but you should go ahead. Yeah. Well, we should we should take more. Uh, but just to quickly say too that that uh, you know. My one of the arguments I make throughout my book is that it, when the Democratic Party pulls its punches on fundamental issues, on moral issues, on issues where there should be no lack of clarity, they do create a space. Um, it isn't just that that you didn't do the right thing. It's also that you're not talking about the the issues in a way that that, as you suggest, Tony, you, you educate people, you you give them a new new perspectives, new ideas. Uh, you show them better ways to to get the goals that they might want in their life. And my sense is, in fact, I, I write about this a, a good deal in the book, that Donald Trump was made possible by the compromises of the Democratic Party on a host of issues. And um, when I, I look, especially at the, at the trade issue, and there's simply no question that the most successful union education in the 1980s and 1990s was about trade policy. They, they, they helped people in all kinds of unions understand that trade policy was, a, a, was being warped by Wall Street and corporate interests. It's one of the reasons why the 1999 protests in Seattle against the WTO were so remarkable because they brought together people from so many different perspectives, all understanding that through this lens of trade, uh, people were losing uh, environmental protections, labor protections, worker rights, human rights, a host of issues. So this was a really successful education campaign. And yet, what did the Democratic Party do? NAFTA, free trade with China, uh, ultimately a host of other free trade deals. And, and again and again, this sort of return to what is a touchstone for Wall Street, but wasn't a touchstone for trade unionists and for, for movement folks. And, and ultimately comes along Donald Trump and he talks a lot about trade, right? Now, does he understand the issues? Not in a good way. Um, is he proposing real solutions? No, he's not. But the fact of the matter is when he turned the volume up on trade, he became the guy talking about it and taking advantage, frankly, of years of education that there were problems with trade. And so the Democratic Party, by its failure, to recognize a, a responsibility, again, to the unions, uh, among other folks, by its failure to do so, it, it leaves a space open for other forces and, um, and forces on the right. So I think the question is a very appropriate one. And it's one of the reasons why, um, no matter what one thinks about Democratic Party, third parties, other, other routes, you still have to fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. <laughs> because the fact of the matter is, if the Democratic Party is one of these two major players, and it's not balancing out the right by going to a very different place, then you end up in a situation where the right has far more space in which to operate. So a progressive Democratic Party, again, whether you like it or not, whatever you think, um, it, it, it's just something that you have to have as an alternative to a right-wing Republican Party, or that right-wing Republican Party will take advantage of the space it's given. Well, and I'd agree, and I'm, I'm getting messages that we need to wrap up. So let me just 
one concluding statement to you about, and and obviously this question of third party, Democratic Party reform is really compelling to people because that's what most of the questions have been about. And, and also clearly whatever happens in November, um, the, you know, activists at every level engaged in politics or union organizing, you know, the battle's not going to be over. And so, you know, clearly it's not going to be over if Trump wins again, but if Biden wins, then, you know, then there's every urgency to, uh, to move the democratic party as much as possible. Again, you can believe that there's no, there's no real hope of real of real reform of the party there, but providing that space for organizers to, to be able to work without having to fear, you know, about, about every possible crackdown, about every OSHA inspection you're not getting about every, about every FDA regulation that's being rolled back, you know, will give us some, some more space. So I would say the fight will continue after November, regardless, as it is now. And let me thank everybody who's still out there listening. It was fabulous for you to be here. I hope we um, entertained and informed, as was our obligation. And please um, do read John's excellent book. And I'll also put in a plug for mine, because not only are you learning and supporting to authors, but you're also supporting these great um, presses, Verso and Haymarket, which in this um, moment really, really need our support and deserve it. And let me just um, thank everybody again and tell you about these upcoming events, remind you again that this Thursday, May 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern time, um, you can check out what a school means with the amazing e-viewing and Jen Johnson. Friday, May 15th at 5 p.m., Shelter, Displacement, and the Pandemic City, which will have speakers from Australia, Argentina, and the U.S. discussing the global housing crisis and vast inequalities in our cities. Tuesday, May 19th next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Abolish Ice is Not a Slogan, with Justin Akers-Chacon and John Washington. And then next Thursday, May 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Here's my favorite, maybe, well, I don't know. They all sound really, really great. Class struggle organizing in moments of crisis with Robin D.G. Kelly, Sarah Jaffe, and Assad Hader. And obviously, John and I agree that class struggle organizing needs to continue in moments of crisis and even in moments that are relatively okay. Um, so um, let's, uh, everybody should tune in for all of those. And any closing thoughts, John? Because I think we have two more minutes or something. Yeah, like, you just did great there. And thank you. And, and um, thanks to everybody that tuned in. Uh, this is such vital stuff. And I, uh, I'll tell you, my book makes a fine holiday gift, whatever holiday is coming up. <laughs> And but it only works well if it's packaged with Tony's book. Uh, the two of them, a perfect package for for your next gifting. Uh, with that crass commercialism put out of the way, let me close off with just a, a, a statement about the moment that we're in. We are in the midst of a, a global public health uh, crisis. We are as well in the midst of a global economic meltdown. Um, these are overwhelming circumstances that have to be understood for what they are. We have to fight uh, for our frontline workers. Uh, we also have to fight uh, for working class people who are being disempowered, dispossessed, uh, harmed in this moment. Those are our, our first struggles. But we should understand that, that in moments like this, historically, uh, 
we have seen the openings uh, for a new politics and a better politics. It, it's no coincidence that Franklin Roosevelt and Henry Wallace came to prominence in the 1930s in the midst of a Great Depression. And the reason they came to prominence was not exploiting the Great Depression, but it was rather to give answers, to give ideas, big, bold ideas. And the fact of the matter is that in this moment, progressives need to be stepping up and making the biggest possible demands. This is the time to, to put the issues on the table that have been left aside, not you know, to exploit the moment, but to recognize that the only way out, the only way out is to turn left. Thank you. That is perfect. Thank you, everyone. And um, stay safe and healthy and keep on organizing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.